0: Welcome to the Savage Leader Podcast, where I interview leaders from all walks of life so that you can walk away with tips to apply to your life and your career. But this isn't your traditional leadership podcast, because I believe that leadership tips come from successful entrepreneurs and business executives, of course, but they also come from unexpected places, like from Navy SEALs, successful professional athletes, sports coaches, musicians, entertainers, and more. So let's dive right in to today's episode. My hope is you walk away with something tangible that you can apply immediately to your life and your career. Today's guest on the Savage Leader Podcast is Jenny Ming. Jenny is an iconic brand builder, experienced board of director, and CEO. She is currently on the board of Levi Strauss, Kaiser Permanente, Poshmark, Affirm, and Kendra Scott. Prior to her current board positions, Jenny co-founded Old Navy, was the CEO of Charlotte Roos. Jenny, thanks for coming on today. Thank
1: you for having me. It's really a pleasure to spend time with you and your listeners.
0: So take me back to the the early days of Jenny Ming. What kinds of things were you interested in? Was it fashion and apparel always or did you have other interests?
1: <laughs> Definitely have a lot of other interests. You know, I immigrated with my family to San Francisco when I was nine years old. And in middle school I fell in love with home economics. You know, of course, people like now probably say, what is that? You know, it's domestic science, or you could say, but there's a piece of it in there is about fashion. It's really about sewing. So um, I was always very good about cooking, sewing, child development. So I, you know, when I went to college, I majored in home, econ- home economic and I wanted to be a home ec teacher. My junior year, the California school system decided home ec was just not academic enough. So they decided to cancel it in all our curriculum. So here I am studying to be a home ec teacher before I could even graduate. I was out of a job. (laughs) So, so I thought, gosh, what, what can I do? And my boyfriend then who is now my husband said, you should be a buyer. You love clothes. I mean, seriously, you you have to remember, this is like I was 20, 20, years old. So I thought, yes, I do love clothes. Yeah. Yeah. So I took some merchandising class. I took some marketing class. I took some, you know, fashion design class. So when I graduated, I joined Mervyns as an executive training program, as a trainee to be in retail, fashion retail. So that's how I got started. But yes, I think if I could be anything besides, you know, an apparel retail, probably would be something to do with food because I love cooking.
0: Always good to follow your passion, follow your purpose.
1: Yes, absolutely you know um, but so many of us at that age don't really know what our passion is you know so I was very fortunate I kind of knew what I love to do and I was able to incorporate that as a career
0: yeah and talk to me about some of the early career challenges it sounds like it's really exciting because you talk about as a trainee at the very first level entry-level job in fashion and apparel and then obviously rising to the very top is what were some early challenges for you
1: I think the earliest, most earliest challenge, because you start from the store, which I actually still believe that any contact with your customer, your consumer is a really great place to start because you know who you're serving, who you're trying to serve. So I was in the store, but I have to say the biggest challenge actually was my parents, especially my mom. She just, you know, four years of college, here I am, she saw it as a clerk in the store. She said, gosh, you, you know, I can't believe you went to college and you were just a salesperson. And so I was trying to explain to her that it could lead to a career. So it's really overcoming your parents' expectation was one of my challenges. Second, I, I would say probably my biggest challenge with people didn't take me seriously, you know, just being an Asian woman, I was soft-spoken. I was, um, in fact, I think my store manager said to me, I think I was three months into the job and he said, Jenny, you're not going to make it because you're just too nice. You let everybody walk o- all over you. And I was like, gosh, I, you know, this was my first leadership lesson was that I wasn't a good manager or leader. So I did not know what to do because, he, he, you know, I three months into my career, I want to say, I'm not going to make it. I don't even know what to do. So I, I brought, you know, I was a, a department manager for linens or domestics. So I brought everybody together and just to say, you know, Mr. Francois said, I'm not going to make it because I'm just too easy for all of you. You guys are walk all over me. So you're probably going to get a new manager. And all of them say, Oh, we don't want a new manager. We really like you. So what do we have to do? I said, Well, you guys need to stop talking and work. <laughs> and if you want to, you know, talk to each other, I could schedule breaks. And when you're working, when you're on the floor, you really need to focus on your work and help customers. They said, Okay, you know, we don't we don't want a new manager. We really liked you. So what I learned was that being transparent, you know, telling them what they need to do, whether it's the goal what they need to accomplish. And having an open dialogue taught me how to be a manager because people don't know what your expectation is if you don't give them and set up an expectation. And when something is not working, explain to them why. I know those are very simple things, but those are very fundamental things being a manager and leader. And I was very fortunate that I learned that very early on how to manage people.
0: It's interesting because I think sometimes people make the assumption, especially at the CEO level, that you have to be the loudest person, the strongest, most confident voice, very competitive, very fast-moving, very risk-taking. But you give such a powerful example of how you could lean into the person that you are as being you know, not that the loudest voice in the room, but you clearly command respect and create trust and transparency through leading your own way.
1: Yes. I always say, if you went into a, a big room, a boardroom, people would definitely not pick me as the leader. (laughs) But you know what, sometimes that's what surprises people, right? It's not always what you expect, but how do you sometimes don't have to be the loudest voice, but with substance and to the point. And like you say, really, you know, so important that leaders come different shapes and sizes and age, I think that is even more important. You know, it's not just default to, you know, a white male at 50 something that has the loudest voice. You know, it's something that I I really believe in and I devoted, very much devote my entire career is really creating, helping develop leaders, especially women leaders, especially women leader of color.
0: Yeah. I'd love to touch on that in a minute, but just take me back to that transition because how do you just become comfortable in just being who you were earlier on in your career? And when you, the models that you saw that your boss at the time told you that you weren't going to make it because you weren't this other version of leadership that perhaps he expected. How did you like, just become comfortable with that and build your own leadership brand?
1: You know, my goal when I w- graduated from college was to become a buyer. So when I became a buyer, when I was, I think it was like 26, 27, I'm like, wow, gosh, I made it. In fact, I called Mr. Spence Far back years later and to say, you know, you said I wasn't gonna make it. I just want to tell you, you know, I became a buyer. (laughs) And he laughed. He said, you know what, Jenny, you really needed to hear that lesson. So I think he did it purposefully. But of course at that time I was very hurt. So sometimes lessons like that really helped you through. It helps you kind of come to grips with what you who you are and what you believe in and what you need to do. And Mr. Francois really did that for me. I think more importantly is when I became a buyer, I thought, gosh, you know, 26, I say it's 27, I made it already. So to me, everything else is almost like icing on a cake. So I have nothing to lose, but everything to gain. So I'm never really afraid. And I also, because it's, it's more than I ever expected in my career already. I'm one of those people that love a new challenge. I love learning something new. So- I don't sit still. I'm always looking at, gosh, especially when I was a buyer. Like we accomplished this, but what is my next year's goals will be? You know, what do I want to build? So I think you, when you challenge yourself like that, I'm very comfortable in my own skin. Is because I think it's almost I kind of like surprising people. Like I said, when if you go into a room that you probably I would be the last person you would think to be leading something, but when they find out actually I am the leader. I love that giving people a surprise. So it's because I think the unexpected sometimes give people, give them kind of off guard. Well, especially coming from my business when I was a buyer, you know, I did a lot of negotiating, right? So I think people don't expect the quiet Asian women to be so steadfast and strong. And so I love being a leader and being a manager that thinking that you really have nothing to lose but everything to gain is that you could be your true
0: self. That's an interesting mindset, especially I think about you as having accomplished so much and you as an early buyer, it's almost like you are this mindset, you already achieved the top, but you had so much further to go. How did you get that mindset of just nothing to lose, everything to gain when you were still really early in your career?
1: I, you know what? I Maybe being an immigrant, I think it was very much taught to me. My family you know, came from... Macau, and my parents give up a lot to bring all of us here, so that um, we could have an education and do well in our career and do well in life. So I always feel like I need to do better, or I'm excited to accomplish certain things. I think there's a little bit of that in my in back of my head, but I also think it's is an incredible feeling when you can accomplish something that you never expect to. Like I said, I don't think anybody expect to, yes, I think they expect I could be a buyer, but I don't think everybody, if you met me in high school, you met me in college, they would never think that I could be one of the founding member of a huge brand or be a president or CEO or a board member. But I think that there is that in all of us, but you have to want it. You know, I think you have to have the passion that you want to achieve and learn, but also have the you know, maybe that's what they call grit—to stay with something and persevere. I think that kind of feeling is something that has always been in me.
0: He talked about it's in all of us, and how do you? I mean, obviously, if you just sounds like a kiss came naturally being an immigrant, the mindset of nothing to lose is how can people just bring that out in people, or, or how have you helped bring that out in other people? It sounds like obviously you're very involved and passionate about mentoring women in leadership, women of color in leadership. Is how do you bring that out in people?
1: Well, sometimes, first of all, it's, sometimes people just don't think they have it in them or they give up very early. And I always try to tell stories about myself. It's just because if you know me later in li- later in my career, you just assume, of course, Jenny was the president or oh, assume, of course you could be a CEO. But in my early career, you probably would have never think that, you know, so I always tell people, you know, how I started. I wanted to be a home ed teacher. Now, I became a buyer because, you know, when, when something didn't work, then you think about what's next. What else are you excited about to do? And I give, tell them stories that if I could, seriously, I'm not just saying it. If I could really accomplish what I've accomplished, you can too. Because, uh, you know, I went to a state university. I majored in home economics. So I do not really have a profile, you know, that I went to a prestigious school. I got an MBA, you know, I was trained. at So no, not at all. So I think it's sometimes it's not what you've where you went to school, what your you know, what company you work for, but it's who really who you are. And then you have to believe in yourself, but you have to also want it. Nobody can make you want something. You have to want it. If you really want it, here are some of the things that you can do. So I think it's really exposing people the possibility of what they can do and want to do. Everybody wants to succeed. But how and why really makes a difference.
0: And you just gave two really great leadership lessons in vulnerability in terms of sharing your own story. And hey, you weren't always in this position, but also humility. It's just those are such powerful leadership principles.
1: I love sharing my stories is because I feel very fortunate to be where I am. And so I want people to know they can too. And that is the reason why, you know, when you asked, would I be on your podcast, I was more than happy to anytime I could, you know, reach even one person is one more than I ever had. Right.
0: So let's fast forward a little bit in terms of the old Navy story. Just, I love that. Obviously it's an iconic brand and, and I was there and I, once it was up and running, but what was that like? How did the, the brand, what was the genesis of that?
1: Okay. Well, I, let me start by telling you, I, we started the brand with 11 people and I was employee number one. So Mickey asked me one day, in fact, actually, I I think I was telling him that I want to move my, my family, my husband just got a new job in Hong Kong. And I want, we want to move the family there. And we have a pretty large sourcing office in Hong Kong. And I love sourcing. So I said, I'm sure you're going to find me a job there. And he said, Oh, we just decided to start a new brand or a new business. And, you know, we have, Gap in the middle, and then we have banana, and then, but we don't play in the mass value sector. And we thought that you would be terrific. You know, I step back and I'm like, gosh, I get to start a new business. But in the meantime, my husband got a new job. So, but I knew I wanted to do this. So I went home and tried to, you know, try to tell my husband, I said, you know what, I got a new, a new opportunity. And I really love to do this, and, but he also have opportunities. So people would always ask, when you have two career-minded people, how do you make the decision? The good thing is, my husband and I are very aligned. We make our decision based on our entire family, like what is good for the family, not just for one person. So after conversation, he think, no, I think we should. So my whole take is, where do you think our kids would be best growing up where, in Hong Kong or the Bay Area? And it really came down to it was the Bay Area. So I got to do my startup and he decided to not do his opportunity. So the reason I share this is because, so when it was announced I was going to do this, I have to tell you, 90% of people thought I was crazy, that I was taking this huge risk because the Gap brand is so well known. And I'm doing a startup that is not well known. And she's like, are you sure you want to do this, Jenny? This is like, it's kind of risky. Seriously, it never entered my mind that this was risky. I thought that was an incredible opportunity. So I I, I step back and say, gosh, how come I think it's an opportunity why so many people thought it was a risk? And you know what? That was the difference, right? To me, it was, gosh, if it didn't work out, I would have learned so much. I'm sure the gap would find me another job inside the corporation. So I, I didn't think twice about it. So we started with that. So it's a new, totally, we started in February 1993. And by... August of 93, we got product in 250 stores. So we took the bottom 49 store of Gap brand. When we pulled it out, actually, those 49 bottom store lost money. In fact, we lost $200,000. No, we lost $2 million in those 49 store. And Mickey said to me, if you could break even, I would be very happy. But really, it's important that when you do a startup to learn as much as you can, because whatever you do, it doesn't affect the company. So... Do not be afraid to take risks and learn. That was an, a, a great lesson I never thought about. So he did give us one store that could, we could start from scratch with our vision of what it could, that brand could be. You know, when we got product in the store in August, right away, we could see how well it did. In fact, it was a winner from the get-go. By September, October, we knew we had a winner. Which, okay, you and I both know many, many startups And you know, very seldom or very, very few times that you could have a winner immediately. Well, Old Navy was that. It was a winner from the very beginning. So we knew by October we were going to roll out and that we would, we actually at that time was called Gap Warehouse and we knew we had to find a new name and a new brand because Gap Warehouse seems like it's part of Gap Brand versus a new brand, a new identity. So that's how we got started. The rest, I would say, is history, as you would all know.
0: Yeah, something you mentioned earlier, I think is interesting, is you said you didn't take fashion seriously, but you took what you did seriously. Can you talk about that a bit?
1: Yeah. So when we first started, we say, you know, I think like everything else, we say, what did this brand stands for? What what do we want this company to stand for? And I I love to say that. um, So it stands for fashion value family and fun and the great thing about it is now 25 plus years later these four pillars a brand pillar still stands at O'Navy. navy so it really stands the test of time so fashion of course we want to be on trend value we want to give the fa- you know we want to give our consumer customer more than they expect because you know a value is not is only a value when you give them more not less and certainly not the same right if, if something costs $20, but it's really worth 40 this is when you get a great value. And then family, it's all about not only the traditional family. Family could be your friends. It could be your community. We want also the non-traditional family to be part of it. So it's a very inclusive brand, which it still is today. But last but not least, it's fun. Not taking clothing or fashion seriously. I mean, I don't know if you remember when you were at Gaping. We took fashion very seriously, we, you know, and we say, you know what, fashion should be fun, you know, it shouldn't be so serious. And clothing is important, but certainly not on the top list of everything as a young family you want to do. I mean, there's, you want to spend more money on education, you want to spend money on your mortgage or vacation or experience. And somewhere down the line, clothing or fashion is, is important, but not that important. And we truly believe that. So we, we want to give fashion at a great price that you would be proud to wear, that you are on trend. So that's why we have all these fun clothes. I mean, we were the first came up with cargo pants. When have, everybody has very clean khaki, we have cargo pants because we have pockets. I always say, let's have fun with fashion and not take our fashion seriously. But we take what we do very seriously is because we really have a purpose and a mission. And we took that very seriously.
0: How did the brand evolve over time? I know recently it was named one of the brands that matters. Is how do what was that evolution like?
1: You know, I would say that the first five years was unbelievable. It was just really, I mean, we broke all records. You know, I'm talking about we hit a billion dollar in less than four years. We were named the brand of the year, we were on Ad Week. we were everywhere. We won awards for our store design. I mean, it was really incredible. But we all know that everything goes up, also comes down. So we kind of expect it; it will plateau or even dip. So we were ready for that. So I think like any brand, the most important thing is you have to be relevant. That means you have to matter, right? So in fact, Nancy Green, who's the current CEO, and I worked together at Old Navy. She was head of Kids and Baby when I was there. She texts me, of course, I knew I saw that, that, you know, we won that award. Of course, you could still see that I have so much pride in that brand. And she actually texts me to tell me and I say, actually, Nancy is so funny because I was about to tell you, congratulations. So, but I think like any brand, you have to evolve with the time. You have to be current. You have to know what your customer or your consumer wants and connect with. So I think all of those things is very important that it matters.
0: And especially in retail and especially in fashion. I think we're all at the whims of the marketplace change, but gosh, I mean, just quarter to quarter, month to month even, that's an incredible pressure just to stay relevant.
1: Well, you know what I think is, this is something I actually learned from you know, Don Fisher, the founder of Gap. He always believed that you have to change. You have to keep evolving. In fact, he all, he, one of his quotes is, if you don't change, you will die. And I know my sound little dramatic, but brands do die if they are not relevant or loved, right? So you've got to really understand that. And I think the great thing about being in fashion, it's kind of in your DNA about being, change, you know, changing all the time because fashion does change all the time. If you stay put, you know, then you're not, not on trend. So I think it's in our DNA Always look for it. What is the next? What is the next trend? What could it be? What is the possibilities of all, you know, your brand? What, what can it be? So I think it is in our DNA about changes. It's about evolution.
0: I think that's just as true for us as our careers in our careers and our, our roles as leaders is to stay relevant, to constantly grow and get better and learn.
1: Yes. I am a true believer of that. You know, I You know, I actually tell people and I, and I really believe it. I don't just, I'm not just saying it. I feel like I know less about retail than I did 10, 20 years ago. And people like would scratch their head. What do you mean, Jenny? I said, because it's ever changing. So when you think you know is when you sometimes it's moved already. So I consider myself a life learner. Like I just, first of all, I love the fashion business. So I really love reading about the consumer mindset Especially, I think, the last two years during the pandemic, we think very differently. We want very differently. How we connect with brands are differently. What matters to us is differently. So I think during this last two years and continuing now, I think there's been a lot of changes. So it's been very interesting for me to read about it or stay on top of it. It's because there's been so many changes the last, the last two years.
0: Talk about that a little bit. I think that's really interesting. And what would you, or what are you doing to advise companies about how to stay relevant to adjust to the new wants and needs of their consumers?
1: So as you know, I'm actually, I would not use my word retire because it's, it's not a relevant word to me. So I actually am on many boards and being on different boards, you know, one of my biggest thing is really how to stay engaged and how to be relevant because I'm no longer a working CEO, right? So if you're no longer, your daily life is connected to consumers, how do you stay connected? So for me is being on all these boards and also challenges me. And so I listen as much as I contribute. I probably listen more than I contribute, I should say. So I learn from different companies, different brands, and really how I read as much as I can, talk to as many people as I can. And the great thing about the boards I'm on, they're all very, very different, as she said, you know, from healthcare to of course apparel retail, fashion retail globally, like Levi's. And you know, Poshmark is a social commerce or you know, has a huge community. A firm is a fintech or, you know, buy now pay later payment system. And, you know, I'm on Kendra Scott, which is a jewelry brand that, you know, that really focused not only about having, you know, jewelry, but it's also about giving back to your community. So every one of these brands are, I would say, have a very strong mission and purpose and is very connected to who they want to serve. And they are so different, but it's connected by a very focus on customer, and consumer, or patient, or people. You know, when I first, my first board actually was on Kaiser, I was on it for eight years. I left for about seven. I just rejoined this year. And I came out of fashion. I came out of o Navy. And then when they called me to see was I interested on the board, I'm like, I know nothing about healthcare. Why would you be interested in me being on your board? And they laughed. They said, we have lots of people that know, you know, medicine and healthcare and hospitals and all of, all of that. But you know what, Jenny, what you know is about people. All the years in retail That means you know consumer, and we don't treat our patients like consumer. We need to influence them. We need to educate them so they could make better decisions for themselves. You know, we're here to tell them what they educate them, but they in the end they have to make the decision. I was very fascinated with that. I thought, gosh, it's something that I never can think that I could sit on a board of a healthcare system, right? But sometimes, you know, you have to look beyond what you think you know. You sometimes we we kind of pigeonhole ourselves. In fact, I was offered many other retail board and I picked Kaiser as my first board. It's because I thought I could stretch myself and learn something new. You know, you could tell by now that I'm one of those people that take risks and not afraid to learn something new. Being uncomfortable is when you really learn the most. Believe me, I sat through many, many board meetings that I feel like I was um, kind of faking it, right? Like, but then I always try to remember why I'm on the board. They don't need me chiming in about, you know, a cure or medicine or health, you know, hospital. But they wanted me to chime in when it's talking about the patient delivery care system or how to connect patients with, you know, the virtual care. You know, they, they want to think about what the, what the patients are thinking. So this is when I know, you know, I have to be at the table and speak about that. That's how you stay relevant.
0: That definitely Kaiser Permanente is the board that really stands out of the other ones. The other ones I can, you know, make sense. There's a lot of synergies between them, but that's um, remarkable. That that would be your first one also. Yes.
1: The first time I went to the board meeting, I think there was 30 plus people around. There was, I think there was 14 board members then, then. And we all, came from very different backgrounds. And um, so it was pretty scary because it, it's a very, I mean, first of all, I always remember not taking, you know, fashion so seriously. Well, you know, because it's not life and death, but, you know, Kaiser, it is very serious. And, you know, I always say, you know, when we have, when we used to have to decide on a button, I'm like, okay, we mull over for an hour. We're not saving lives with this button. <laughs> but, you know, when you're in the healthcare system of course is life and death is very serious so it's a totally different industry but you know i really learned to appreciate every one of on my boards is because you not only like i say learn about what they do the purpose and mission but the board members i learned so much from them the leadership team i learned so much from them and being part of something bigger than yourself is so interesting and so engaging As you could see, probably hear my tone, and how much I enjoy being very proud to be on their board and their company.
0: What was that like? What was that transition? Because obviously you've talked about lifelong learning, comfort with taking risks, but just thinking about that first board, being jumping into Kaiser Permanente, and just but just being a board member in general. What was that transition like for you?
1: I would say an actor was a hard transition because I think all of us, especially myself, I'm used to doing operating. When you're on board, you're not operating. You don't get to do the doing. (laughs) It's about influencing. It's about telling your point of view. It's about your experience. You don't get to do. So I would say that was the hardest transition. And then the second hardest transition is really about being in an industry that you you actually might not be an expert in. So what you do is then take your relevant experience and apply it to a different industry. And it took me... I would say a few years to really learn how to do that. So I would say that transition is never easy. Of course, now after 15 plus years, it's much easier. I think I'm a, but you also have to really be connected to the CEO because sometimes, you know, not all the work is being done in the boardroom. So many of your work is being done outside the boardroom. Sometimes you're mentoring someone or you want to connect, you know, with um, their team. So you know, I come from a school that I always want to contribute as much as I can. And I want to be available. I want to be engaged. Because otherwise, why do why are you there?
0: I'd love just to get a a forward looking view from you. Obviously, you're right in the the centerpiece of just so much from social commerce to FinTech. And obviously, your background in retail is, is what do you think that the future holds for retail? But I think even more importantly, is How is the nature of the relationship between brands and consumers changing and how do you think it will change moving forward?
1: I think that's such an interesting question, right? You know, I came out of retail. It's all about product. It's about marketing. It wasn't at that time, the beginning, that is consumer driven. Uh, Now, actually, it is about the customer, but through technology is probably even more so. And so that actually was the reason why I was excited to join the Poshmark and the firm Board because they technology-based, right? And how they think, how they look at something, how they problem-solve is something very different than a retail brand would solve. But today, with technology, you could solve many different things much more efficiently. First of all, you have a lot more data. We had a lot of data, but we just did not know what to do with the data, if you remember, <laughs> you know, in, in retail. But now, using those data, you could even get closer to consumers and really serve them the way they want to be served. So I would say retail, the first thing I learned is really get to know who they are and how they want to connect with you. It's their decision. As many of multiple points of connection you want to engage with them is how I would look at retail today. Again, I came out with vertically integrated We want to control the brand. You know, the whole thing about controlling that you pulled the string, it really is less, so much less about that today. It's more that the consumers are in charge. They want to connect with you when they want to connect with you and how they see the brand and what is a value to them is a lot more important. So I would say digital data, all of that needs to be in your brand. You know, I'm not even saying that's the future. It's here. It's been here. But how it evolves with that is what is going to be happening. And there's so many ways, as you say, it's not just e-commerce, social commerce. And how you pay for it is different, just like a firm or the buy now, pay later. And how do you connect customers from different brands together is another way. If you have affinity for a certain brand, you might now know enough data that here's another one that you could connect with and you would know and it would be right for you. I think, There's so much information, but how you use those information also matters. I think that brands today has to have a purpose. When you say, you know what, it's just not good enough when you say, you know what, we're just serving it up, but you have to have a purpose and mission behind why you do the things you do, not only for the customer, but also for the employee that is in the company. You know, when I used to think the Onivi brand, you know, you step back, yes, we have great product, but it's more than that, right? Is really about connecting, being inclusive, being in a community or family that you belong to. It's about having great value and and be proud of wearing something, giving you confidence. That was what the brand stands for. So you have to think a little deeper then why you exist and what you want to accomplish with that brand.
0: And you make a great point, especially in terms of mission and purpose from the employee perspective is, you know, whatever you want to call this period in time right now, the great reshuffle, the great resignation is that's so important because we do have choices. I mean, especially with the working virtually now as well. People just have access to markets they didn't have have previously. So just you really punctuate that need for purpose and mission.
1: But you know what I, I would add one more in here besides employee, it's also your investors, your shareholders. They we also look for brands that have purpose and mission. So I think today is really, it just doesn't fly if you don't have that. I think especially after the last two years, you know, more brands are doubling down on purpose and mission and doing more because they see more that needs to be done. I mean, think about, you know, all the social issues. Brands are wading in on it, which 10 years ago, you would never see that right it's almost important because consumer demand that you stand for something and they want to know what mm-hmm. you what you what matters to you what you care about because that connection matters to them
0: yes yeah, so i imagine as you're saying these things people are thinking oh that's just for you know fashion apparel brands consumer brands but what advice would you have for just all leaders of all kinds in terms of what are the implications of that need for greater purpose and mission and how can you I would say retrofit is the right word, but some companies were born with mission and purpose. Obviously Patagonia is a great example. Old Navy is a great example. Okay, now I'm, of course I'm picking up- apparel companies, but there's so many. Is what, what would your advice be, or what is your advice that you work with companies on in terms of how to bring mission and purpose if they weren't founded on that on that principle?
1: I think it could be a brand. It could be a team. So when I mentor and coach leaders, Sometimes they don't own the brand themselves, of course they belong into a brand or company, but it could be a team that what your team stands for, what is your mission and purpose? So actually I start from there. I I can't even, you know, I start my mentoring session is very much like, what is your team? What what are you here to do? What do you want to accomplish? Uh, What do you stand for? And I start with that. And what do you value? What's your value of behaviors is another piece of a team or brand is very important. If you have that kind of alignment, this is when you and and you, not only alignment and belief, this is when a team works the best because you know what you want to do and how to go about doing it is because you have the same belief. And we have that at Old Navy, and I, I think I you know I chatted with you a little bit about that. Is we started with four, I would say co-founder. Of course, I had the merchandising. Piece, which is running of the business, I have the sourcing, the visual design of the store, the merchandise planning. Then we have a head of marketing, PR, and then we have a head of product and design. And then we have a head of store and finance. So all four of us have very, very different skill set. We were very short on people. So we were very aligned with what we want to accomplish. And we all know, and we have incredible respect and trust in each other. So we knew what we need to do and we went and did it I think the best example, when we opened 18th and 6th, our first flagship store in New York, I had some idea what marketing was doing. I had pretty much, you know, idea, you know, how to, you know, what Kevin Lonigan in the store is, you know, staffing. And I have, of course, I know about product because we are very attached to that. But when it all fell together and kind of, when we opened the store, it looked like one person's vision versus like four leaders because we were so aligned and we had, trust in each other to do our part, this is when it really, because we had a purpose, we had a mission, and we knew exactly what each of us need to bring to bear. This is when things work. And I saw it firsthand for many, many years. And I'm really proud to be able to see that. So it was another leadership lesson for me, which I talk about, is because I could see why when something is successful and when something is not.
0: And what a great example of, you mentioned alignment, but of collaboration, but how did you go about from a practical perspective of gaining that alignment? Because obviously you have, you've got very, I imagine, strong perspectives, lots of really rich experience that were brought to this situation, but how did you actually go about creating that alignment?
1: So how you create alignment is, you need first of all, you need to spend time together and really think through what you're all here to do, right? What do we want to accomplish? What does what success look like? And I love brainstorming session when you have lots of ideas. It should never be a bad idea, but you can't do all of it. So, so much of it is for us to work through what what to focus on, what to prioritize, how, mu- how much can we handle that we can really accomplish. You know, of course, I love to say, oh, here's 20 things I love to do all of them. We, we all know we can't do that. But are they t- all 20 important? No. So I think the first alignment is, is really about agreeing what you want to accomplish and then how to accomplish that and who does what. All of that, the only way is really taking time to work through that process. There's no such thing as, you know, and I love a good, robust conversation or disagreement. But once you walk out of the room, we're aligned. That means even if I didn't agree with you, I'm going to do it is because we ha- my, we, I had a chance to give my point of view. So I would say that is something that I, um, I have seen that works. And You need to take time to make that happen.
0: Yeah, it's not just getting aligned, but it's staying aligned, not unwinding that agreement after the conversation happens or that meeting happens.
1: So we have, instead of a staff meeting, I always call it a priorities meeting because sometimes you have, especially in retail, you have to kind of refocus, reprioritize. So you want something that's active. Updating is just telling people, you know, what happened. But what pro- pro- we call a priorities meeting is really being active to do something about it. And meeting often to realign or, or make changes is so important.
0: I'd love to go back to something you mentioned early on and, and talk about a little bit more about the work you're doing to mentor women, especially women of color and leadership.
1: Yeah. That's actually one of my favorite parts when I was in Old Navy and Charlotte is is coaching and mentoring leaders and developing leaders. So I've always done it more ad hoc, you know, because this is part of your job. So I also have always done it, you know, when someone called me and say, Jenny, can you mentor this person? Or can you have a conversation? I always say yes, especially, like I say, if it's a woman, especially as a woman of color. So now I actually work for a company called Exco Leadership Development. So I'm an executive mentor and coach. So I actually have clients, and uh, so happen clients I have is from technology, you know, or from food. And leadership crosses all different boundaries. You know, a, a good leader is have a very similar traits, doesn't matter what you know, field you're in. So much of it is just really probing thinking, helping them to think through and strengthen their leadership skills. So everybody needs different things. But I usually start with, like I said, an assessment of their team, because being a leader is really leading a team of people. So really understand that dynamic helps them think think through their leadership lessons. So that is what I'm working on today as I would say a side job, (laughs) but it's again, it just keeps me engaged. It keeps me interested. You know, what is relevant to today's leader? What are some of the challenges they're going through? So that's what I'm doing too.
0: That's fantastic. Obviously uh, one of many side jobs that you, (laughs) that you have, but what a great way to be giving back.
1: No, I enjoy it immensely.
0: So you gave us a little bit of a forward look in terms of what's happening now or what's next, but if you were to go back through your own career, like what's the most powerful leadership lesson that you learned in your career?
1: I think probably the most powerful is that it really is about the people because you only could be as good as you are is who you surround yourself with. I know this sounds kind of maybe old, but it's really true. You know, when I think that Navy was really, is because we had incredible people. And, that, and people used to ask me, even as a merchant say, how much time do you spend on people? So especially when we were growing, I would probably say it 70, 80% of my time because I had to keep hiring. As a leader, I had to stop doing the doing because I need to make sure they, the team can do the doing, right? So I would say, so the people part really matters. And building the best team you can is probably the most important job as a leader. It starts with people, it ends with people. I would, that's what I would say. So that's and I saw many firsthand, the leader, your leadership matters is because pe- if you are a really good leader and you, you're willing to develop and work with your team, people want to work for you. And you get to pick up your best people is because you are a good leader yourself. So I would say that's one of probably the most powerful lesson is really is about people. And I think second is really about taking risks with your career. As I said, you know, when I you know took on you know, or maybe people thought I was taking a huge risk, but I never thought so. So I'm one of those people, like I would regret not doing something versus regret if something failed. I'd rather fail and have done it than not have even the opportunity to do something. So I'm a pretty big risk taker when it comes to my own career. And I always encourage people to do that too. I'm, As you can see, I'm not very complacent. I don't sit still, you know, even where I am at my career, most people would say, oh, requires it nicely. And but to me, is there's still so much to out there and to learn and to contribute. So I, that's the reason why I don't consider myself retired. I certainly am not running company today, but I feel like as much as fulfilled as I ever been in my entire career. So to me it's like making sure that you are, you know, if you want to be a lifelong learner, it doesn't have to be in the in business, it could be if you want to be a chef, you know, you want to learn how to cook, you want to learn how to paint, whatever that your passion is. I think I really am. a believe that you should do it and don't regret not doing something.
0: I think it's interesting. people talk about risks in business or a startup or risks in life, and, but I don't think people really think about risks in your career. I mean, what practical advice would you give for people in terms of like, how do they even think about that? How do they actually apply that mindset?
1: Well, first of all, I think so many times people are afraid to take lateral moves. They always want to just get promoted. You know, they only want it is vertical. I am a huge believer that do not hesitate to take on, it could be even a lesser title, but if you're learning something new that could help you in the future, I would do it. Or do a startup. Or how to, you know, be a functional expert and be a general manager. A lot of people want to a functional expert because they feel really good about what they do and what their expertise, what they contribute, which is terrific. That's great. But if you get an opportunity to be a general manager and morph into multi I think it's an incredible opportunity. I can't tell you how many people hesitate to do that. You know, I hesitated myself because you know I was a merchant for so long. And when I was offered the president of O Navy, you know, for Mickey Drexler, actually I turned it down for the first time it's because i thought gosh i had the best job i love merchandising i love product why would i want to be the president uh, i think partly i was so you know comfortable and so good at what i did i didn't see that gosh this would be an incredible move right i thought about it and you know i he keep interviewing president coming in and i was of course in the pre- you know interview list and i thought gosh if someone came in and became president how would i feel and i felt I would probably be bummed because I worked so hard for this. And a year later, in fact, you know, he was giving me my annual review. And I said, Mickey, you know, you asked me, was I interested in being president? I thought a lot about it. I am interested. And he started laughing. He said, you know what, Jenny, it took you long enough. I thought you would be in my office much faster, much earlier than this. So, you know, I tell this story. It's just because I think that how could anybody turn down a president role but I did it's because you know things were going so well. I didn't want to rock the boat. I love what I did. I, I thought of all the reasons why I shouldn't versus the reasons why I should, and I finally realized, understood why I should. I mean, it was an incredible opportunity. I could really learn so much about being a general manager and all learning all the other functions and connecting all of that. So I was the president of O' Navy for seven years. I never you know, regret it in a day. So not be afraid and to learn something new and take a risk, even if you fail.
0: Yeah, I think that's interesting. You talk, obviously, that's a very unique general manager type of job, a promotion and being a, a broadening of your role. But I think that's really important. As I remember my early in my career, I looked at my friends who were in finance or were in consulting or whatever it was, they were moving up really quickly. And I I was building expertise in such a wide array of areas, but eventually there became enough depth where I could weigh in on so many things and it allowed me at least personally to bring so much more richness to a conversation. So it was, I think, extra value, but also just so much more fulfilling for me at least.
1: It is, but you know, um, that's why not hesitating. I think there are reasons why not think about all the reasons why is more important.
0: Definitely. And taking risks.
1: Because people don't Nobody likes failing. I don't like failing. But you know what? But if it's something that works out, you get so much more from it. But if you don't take the risk, you will and you want to fail somewhere along your career. And once you learn that, it's okay. You can pick yourself up and you got something out of it. And I think you you would learn so much more and you you would advance your career so much more if you are comfortable with that.
0: It gets back to something you mentioned earlier is just being in a state of discomfort is where growth happens. And obviously you have to acknowledge at some level that failure is possible. If you're uncomfortable, if you're uncomfortable, there's there's something, there's a reason why.
1: Exactly. It's so true, isn't it?
0: Well, Jenny, I really appreciate your time. So much wisdom on so many different topics, but thanks so much for coming on today. No,
1: my pleasure. I hope you got, and your listener would get something out of this.
0: Absolutely. Thanks, Jenny. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Savage Leader Podcast. My hope is you are walking away with tactics that you can apply to become a better leader in your life and in your career. If you're looking for additional insight and tactics, be sure to check out my book titled The Savage Leader, 13 Principles to Become a Better Leader from the Inside Out. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, and I would truly appreciate it if you would leave a review and also rate the podcast. Thanks, and see you all in the next episode.